Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set here. Any program about science or scientists today is almost bound to focus on space. Hey, Houston, the Challenger has landed. It's the station. Uh, we are ready for the event. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Space Boffins with Sue Nelson and Richard Hollingham and an astronaut. We'll hear from a leading Saturn scientist, update you on the Space Boffins spacecraft and look back 40 years to Skylab. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists and if ever an organisation epitomised space and boffins, it's the British Interplanetary Society, founded in 1933 and the Society is celebrating its 80th birthday this year and we're recording this edition of Space Boffins in the Council Room at its headquarters in London. I must admit, it is rather lovely. And I think my favourite wall out of the, the four walls here is the one behind Richard and myself, opposite the guests. And it, there's a collection of the most amazing retro space art. That's the only word for it. It's retro space art. Only the thing is, it wasn't imagine. retro when they painted it. No, that's true. It was state Anyway, we'll put art. some pictures of that up on our Facebook page. Our guests are Ralph Timberlake and Jane MacArthur from the British Interplanetary Society, and a man first introduced to the European media like this. Timothy Piki, European astronaut of UK nationality. Yes, collective gasp, a UK astronaut. Tim Peake. Timothy Peakey. Timothy Peake. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it like to be in these hallowed surroundings? Don't you feel the weight of history in this room? I do. And uh, and Richard, thank you for showing me the Biz Library just now. It's a fascinating place. Uh, and it's wonderful to be here. My first visit is tr- truly tremendous. It is an amazing place. Uh, Ralph and Jane, we'll talk more about the society later. Do you feel that, that sense of, of history and some of the great things that have, that have gone on here? Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you mentioned, about the paintings just now these come from projects which were initiated in the in the beginning 80 years ago sort of through the 30s 40s 50s and and these were really artist designs of you know what later have become spacecraft uh, you know you see the lunar lander and it just does show the history and also what can come from that history that many of these ideas were conceived here became reality absolutely well after a selection process that lasted almost a year major tim Peake was selected as one of six esa astronauts in may 2009 now since then he's done 16 months of basic training learnt russian and been on expeditions that were underground and underwater now the underwater one was nasa's extreme Environment Mission Operations, or NEMO, testing technology and techniques that could be used on a future mission to an asteroid. Now, Tim, you were on an, in an underwater base there for 12 days for NEMO off the Florida Keys. How was it? It was absolutely fantastic in every respect, from a professional perspective and from a personal perspective, because I'm a huge fan of, of scuba diving and I love the marine environment. But it was tremendous working with a mobile mission control centre as well. So we had NASA had their articulated truck with 80 members of a ground support team that were in a car park off the of the Florida Keys supporting us. Uh, we had support vessels every day coming to the, the dive site, diving down to, the, to assist us in what we were doing on the ocean floor. And in the second week of our submersion, we had deep worker submersibles, which were simulating our space exploration vehicles. And if it couldn't get any better than that, we also had jetpacks. So oh my it, was, it was just a truly tremendous experience. And I read that um, you even had a 50... They'd actually inserted a 50-second delay, so it sort of felt like there was a, a, 
a, a communication across millions of miles, effectively. That's right. The entire mission was run like a, an asteroid mission would be. From our splashdown, we were on a, a strict 50-second comm delay. That's to friends and family as well. We had internet and phone available from the habitat, which is, is what you'd expect uh, people today on a deep space mission to have, but with the 50-second delay imposed as well. Um, we even ran some emergency scenarios with that delay, which, which had some interesting results. Well, you can't just say that. No, what, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> yeah, spill it. Which were? <laughs> to put it this way, there, at the moment, the, there is still an awful lot of support from Mission Control, both Houston, Moscow, Columbus Control Centre, Munich and Japan. We discovered that the crew is going to have to have a huge amount of autonomy on a deep space mission with communication delay because you simply cannot rely on ground support for anything. So that will affect the crew composition. It will affect some of the procedures and also how we manage procedures how we handle procedures on board. I suppose that's not happened since the the moon missions, really, when they were on the far side of the moon or away from Earth, having to actually figure things out in space rather than rely on, on ground control. That's right, yes. Yeah, and it's, it's going to be a, an aspect of all future, future manned space flight. So uh, it's very important research. Now, that was a NASA mission. You're an ESA astronaut. How did that happen then? Well, this really comes down to the fantastic international collaboration we have across all of the international partners of of the ISS project. And in return for me going on NEMO, two NASA astronauts attended the European Caves Training, which is run in Sardinia in the cave complex there. And we hope to continue that kind of collaboration in the future. There's some fantastic videos available online or on YouTube and wherever, and the UK Space Agency site, I think, as well, of you doing that cave training and my first thought was well that looked like you were inside an asteroid was that what was in your head for the cave training or was it more about team building and technology testing it was about both really but no we certainly did have a a huge sense of uh, a space mission because that was the way it was run Uh, again with a a similar sort of mission control outside the cave we were running to a strict timeline uh, as they do on board the station today doing scientific research doing true exploration mapping the cave and lots of of teamwork as well cave photography was one of the tasks um, which is quite tricky getting the, the light right and everything it was a great experience yes you don't want to go all that way and come back with a fuzzy image <laughs> just little like thumb in the, in just the like on yeah. the space station you don't want to be up there and taking bad photographs so it was great we and these like nemo and the caves they're space analog and of course they're run as close as they can be to a true space mission and you're at the moment sort of day job is the equivalent of capcom with the, the International That's Space one Station, of the is jobs, that one yes. of the things? Yeah, so that, how, how does that work? But it's, it's from Germany, isn't it, that you it can is, base yes. yourself? And our equivalent is called Eurocom, and we speak to the International Space Station, but uh, primarily we're involved with all of the tasks that are going on inside the Columbus Laboratory. So Capcom will take care with other, seg- other, other parts of the US segment. Um, JAXA, JCOM take care of the Japanese laboratory, and we'll talk to the crew when they're running European experiments in the Columbus Laboratory. Do you train in soil? which is the current means of getting to the International Space Station. But you also looked at Dragon. So you could fly in, in Dragon when you go to the International Space Station. Yes, at the moment, I mean, Soyuz is, is the vehicle that we're all training on, and uh, European astronauts uh, traditionally sit in the left-hand seat, which requires a lot more training because you have to be trained to the same level as the commander. Dragon, at the moment, the crews are training on in terms of capture and operation in terms of hatches and equipment and systems on board Dragon. So uh, that's the, the real-time training going on to 
today. But of course, we're looking ahead to the future, maybe 2018, maybe sooner, hopefully, that we'll have a manned version of Dragon. And is the assumption for you that you will go to the International Space Station? Or are you looking at an asteroid mission or, or even Mars? Because Mars is suddenly back on the agenda again. No, for myself and all of my European colleagues, we're very much focused on the International Space Station doing a, a six-month tour between now and 2020. Do you know where you are in the queue? Well, we, we had a very good ministerial in November. Ah, and, yes. Uh, <laughs> Brits put some money in. Has that bumped you up a bit there? I, let's just say it's a positive uh, turn of events. And <laughs> the, the great news, that I, I mean, the great news is firstly that Europe's always had a really good track record of flying all of its astronauts uh, multiple times in most cases. And we have flights now in 2015, 2017 and 2019. Mm. And there are three astronauts who have yet to be assigned. How so do you that's maintain that I would be wetting myself <laughs> with excitement <laughs> for the years that when you, how, how do you cope with that do you suppress it uh, keep it calm and how do you cope with that Yes, I, you make it as normal as you possibly can do. Otherwise, um, you couldn't possibly keep that <laughs> level of, of energy for the nine years it might be that, yeah. uh, that you're waiting before your mission. So it's a case of just taking each day as it comes and each year as it comes. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that a few months ago, Space Boffins, on behalf of my BBC Future column, bought a satellite. Now, it, it's not a very big satellite. More, well, it's more like a postage stamp. It's flat and three and a half centimetres square. Nevertheless, this Sprite, as it's called, will hopefully later this year be launched into space, along with 199 others. Now, they'll be ejected from a mothership known as Kicksat, which is a crowd-funded project devised by Cornell University graduate student Zach Manchester. I recently caught up with Zach in the lab that he'd been lent at NASA Ames in Silicon Valley, California, where we had a look at one of the sprites. About half the, the board area is taken up by solar array, and then there's a, a microcontroller, which is sort of a little computer, a radio transceiver. Then we have two sensors. We have a magnetometer and a gyroscope. The magnetometer allows us to sense the Earth's magnetic field, so you can do some interesting things with that. And then the gyroscope tells us how the sprite is spinning. So this is really of interest because we want to see how the deployment works. So we want to see exactly how these things come out of the mothership kicks at and then what their spin behavior is like after that. And then over time, how they're perturbed. This is actually a, a really interesting uh, flight dynamics question that we have. So really, if you look at that, it's, there's no propulsion on it. It's being propelled out. But you've got the power source, which is the, the solar panels. You've got a, a central processor, if you like, and you've got some instrumentation on there. That's pretty much a satellite, isn't it? It's got a lot of the pieces, yeah. We've power, communications, sensors, and, and computing power, yeah. So we cover a lot of the bases. We don't have propulsion. I think that's the big one. You've also got some aerials that, that will stick out right. on the side. You've got a, so it's got a, tra it's got a, tra it's got a transmitter yeah. on it, yeah. and it, and it'll have sort of a couple of antennas coming mm -hmm. out. What are they made of, and how will they fit on them? So the antennas are made of nitinol, which is uh, sometimes called memory metal. It's I have a piece here you can play okay, with. Okay, so like. it's in a big, long, or a couple of meter long plastic tube, and it just looks like wire. Uh, very thin wire. So, so what's the what's the what's the beauty of this? What's so this the is the same it? stuff. If you've ever seen the glasses that you can wrap around your finger, that's what this stuff is. Essentially, you can bend it or coil it however you like, and it'll always pop back straight. Okay, so if I coil that around my finger here, so quite tight around my finger, just let it go. Okay, it goes back straight again. Yeah. So you've got to somehow what coil two hundred? <laughs> you've got one of these on each each satellite. Yeah. That's what undergrads are for. Okay, yeah. so you've got to coil this up 
on each one of these not to get tangled and that to, to spit out 200 of yes. these little sprites. So the idea is that these will be, they'll be attached to each board and then we're going to coil it up within the footprint of the board, sort of underneath each one and stack them. So when they pop out, the antennas will unfurl. Quite apart from the satellite itself, which is, which is unique. No one's done this sort of thing before or certainly not on this this scale right yeah as far as i know this is going to be the smallest spacecraft ever you've also got this unique way that this has been funded this is almost i don't know the people's satellite i'd like to think of it that way so yeah uh, the way that most of the funding for this was done was through a website called kickstarter where we posted the project on the web and asked people to back us to sponsor us in exchange for certain rewards so the economics of this scale really well and i think we're actually pushing towards a personal satellite here where you could actually have your own satellite you can afford to put your own thing in space and i think this is getting towards sort of the realm of high school classes doing a satellite and that sort of thing now we've bought one of these so we have a vested interest in in this project what are we going to get out of out of this what's it going to do for us (laughs) well i think number one is a little bit of geek cred (laughs) you get the pride of knowing that uh you have something in space with your name on it i think that's number one but uh i think really that the big thing here is the broader goal and, and vision of this you know you have to think a little bit longer term here right now i mean this is more or less sputnik you know on a chip with the way electronics have advanced I can almost guarantee you that in a couple more years, there'll be way more stuff to pack onto these and you'll be able to do a lot more with them by doing it first and saying, here's how you can do it and we'll lay it all out and do the hard stuff, build the deployer and launch the first one and demonstrate it and all this stuff and then put everything out there uh, in the public domain so that other people can, can do it again. I think that's sort of where we come in and we're setting up the longer term evolution of this so that it can happen in the future the very impressive zach manchester who's leading the kicksat project and the next stage for us is to build a ground station i'll be starting that with a lot of help in the coming weeks and we'll keep you posted on twitter and facebook yo we have geek cred i I like the fact that it said sputnik on a chip actually i thought that was (laughs) absolutely marvelous i mean do you think this gives Tim, everyone the opportunity, you know, to have access into space, to feel as though they're part of it. I, I think it's wonderful. Yes, it does. And um, I think we were you know they're reducing the, the size and, and CubeSats and now the even smaller microsats. It is giving everyone access to space. It's making it easier for schools and universities to take part in scientific projects. And um, with the commercial sector as well booming, hopefully it's going to reduce the cost of access to space as well. Well, this cost a couple of hundred pounds, I think, didn't it? About $300, I think. $300. Yes, we it for $300. Electronics now are so small, though. I mean, there's there's that new kit, I don't know if you've seen for schools the last year, the Raspberry Pi, which is like a oh, yes. PC, Computer, on a, yeah. PC on a sort of Plate. playing card <laughs> yes. size board that I've got as well. And it's, you know, if you can put one of those inside one of these little kicksets, it's just, you can just do anything. I think the big issue here and the big cost for them is the, is the launch. They're getting the launch yeah. for free yeah. from NASA yeah. and that's yeah. always the cost. But if you can keep miniaturising and miniaturising and miniaturising, everyone can get a share and it can all add up to an entire satellite. You know, we could all have part of a satellite. Yes, and in the name of miniaturization, I read an interesting report recently that that encoded the whole uh, complete works of um, Shakespeare onto a DNA strand. That's quite mind-blowing, isn't it? You could have your entire planet's history in an atom. <laughs> 
Okay, back to reality. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Ralph, the, uh, uh, one of the reasons we, we included that interview in this podcast is because uh, the British Pantry Society is involved in this project as well. So you've got some of these. You know, as we said before, it's a bit of a collective, you know, the, the financial side is collective. So I think we raised about 3000 towards it but this has come donations from specific from members who sort of are allocated to that and i believe we've got uh we're going to have a, a, a tracking kit to have sort of a ground station and this is one of the projects that we're trying to work on and have more high profile on it this year perhaps have sort of hands-on workshops here at the bis for members that want to get involved so we can you know track the kick sets that are out there because i i think it comes like you said in sort of you can get it in kit kit form and i have no can, I, look i have no idea because a lot of i've said people, i'm going to do it I've, I've said i'm going to do it i have no idea how some of the, i mean it. some of the people we've got a, a technical committee that work on these projects so it's the sort of thing that we can you know spend a day putting it together because a lot of people are you know electronic and it geeks as well as space geeks you know so we can sort of bring all of these things together and hopefully build the ground station from that and work on a way to perhaps even link it to our website and give information. I want to know about your members, actually, because we've got a sort of hint of the, the variety of some of, of your current members. I mm-hmm. mean, historically, going past, you've had Arthur C. Clarke, Patrick Moore, yeah, you've yeah. had yeah, um, the C. guy Clark who developed the, the Blue yeah. Streak missile engine. Yeah, when I mean, you know, Arthur C. Clarke was one of the earlier sort of members, and he was president a couple of times as well. It's also thanks to him that we have such a big library because he was so generous to donate many books. And Patrick Moore was the first editor of Spaceflight in in the fifties, which is the magazine the 50s, that the society, which produces, is one of our, which yeah. is our, you know, one of our sort of main magazines that people join the society. What for. about today's members, though? How do they arrange? I mean, we know that um, Jane is a is a member, mm-hmm. and. You're a space scientist. Are all your members space scientists? They're not, are they? No, there's a, there's a huge range. I mean, there's a huge range of ages now because the society is 80 years old. So, you know, we have members who are in their 90s even. What we're trying to do these days is really regenerate the society. We've got a lot of history, but we need to make sure that the society is seen to be working towards the future and, and the current situation. You know, but you what's have going got very now. young members as well because you have got this association with yeah, we, UK SEDS. Yeah, we just got the association with UK SEDS, which is how you know Jane and I sort of met really through through these sort of agreements that we've got. And um, you better explain for those who are not yes, don't know so what UK SEDS actually is. So UK SEDS is the UK Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, and the idea is there's a national committee that try to collate all student societies from individual universities that are involved with engineering, science, or astronomy. And those societies can affiliate to the main body, which has a national conference each year and a workshop and some other events as and when the committee can organise them. Um, The committee are spread across England and communicate on Skype calls, which is obviously quite difficult to put one event together in one place. So the BIS have offered this affiliation whereby they can help with some support to coordinate things, keep them going, and also with committee handover every year, because with students it's a little bit difficult to keep track of everything. It's not just those students, is it? No, you, you're, you've no. got a lot of general members who are just Absolutely. Space, space addicts. There are a lot of ordinary members who perhaps just read, want to read Spaceflight. They just want to read about what's, what's current. They want to come to our website to see what's going on. Science fiction authors and people interested in, in science fiction also get something from it as well because we have contact with space artists and a lot of that is based on science fiction, people's imagination 
Well, this is the Space Boffins podcast. The Cassini spacecraft is currently enjoying its 15th anniversary year. Its extended mission around Saturn, those famous rings and intriguing moons, is now continuing until 2017. And one woman in particular is very excited about what lies ahead. Michelle Doherty is a professor of space physics at Imperial College London and the principal investigator for Cassini's magnetometer, the instrument that discovered those icy jet plumes coming from Saturn's moon, Enceladus. So I went to meet her to find out what lies ahead. We're going back to many of the moons, we're revisiting the rings, but we're seeing them at different time periods and so the rings change their shape as the season changes and so oh why because as saturn orbits around the sun its angle to the sun changes and so depending upon the orientation of saturn and its rings in the night sky you can sometimes see the rings and sometimes you can't if you're looking edge on at the rings they aren't very thick and so you can hardly see them at all and so as Saturn is orbiting around the sun. It takes 35 years to go around the sun. Its inclination, the angle of its north pole and the rings is going to change with respect to the Earth. And so we're actually able to see different views of the rings at different times. Wow. So what's the the new stuff then that you're doing that hasn't been done on the mission so far? We're flying past some of the moons at different places. One of the great things about being able to go back to a moon like Enceladus lots of times is that instead of just having a single flyby where you can image a particular part of the surface or you can fly through a particular part of the plume, you can actually choose to view different parts of the surface and also have a look at different parts of the plume. And so we're going through different regions and then we're able to compare and contrast and see what might be different. Now remind us again of these of these plumes that okay. your team were the, the first to discover. Yes, back in 2005 we had a distant flyby of Enceladus. We're about 2,000 kilometres above the surface and I must confess we didn't expect to see anything. And we looked at the data a couple of days after we got it and there was this strange bump in the data and we looked more closely at it And we were a little concerned to begin with because one of the things that the spacecraft does when it flies close to a moon is it moves pretty quickly so that the camera can keep the moon in view all the time. And it takes a few days for the mission people to get back to the teams the trajectory of the spacecraft, so how it moved during that time. And so we were a little concerned that maybe we weren't seeing something in our data, but we hadn't quite got the spacecraft movement right. But after a few days, we got an update, and we still had this blip in the data. And we had a closer look at it, and what it seemed to be telling us was that instead of the plasma and the magnetic field from Saturn being able to go right down onto the surface of Enceladus, it was being held off from it at some distance away from the surface. We then had a second flyby about a month later, which was 500 kilometers above the surface, and again we saw the same signature. And so I went to the Cassini project and I said that we thought we were seeing an atmosphere at Enceladus, but we weren't sure, and that we thought it was important enough that we wanted them to take the third flyby, which was a couple of months later, much closer to the surface. It took a bit of persuasion, 
but it helped that the man who was responsible for the spacecraft's safety wanted to go closer to any planetary body than any spacecraft had gone before. So we eventually persuaded them, and they said they would change the mission flyby. So instead of being, I think it was going to be 1,000 kilometres above the surface, it went 173 kilometres above the surface. That's really close, isn't it? It is close. It's got closer since. But um, on this particular flyby, I must confess, I didn't sleep for a couple of nights beforehand because if we hadn't seen anything, no one would ever have believed me again. But what we saw was a very strong signature. And what we did on the third flyby is we actually flew past the South Pole. And that allowed us to see that the atmosphere, it wasn't really an atmosphere. It was a plume of water vapor that was coming off from the South Pole. But because the flyby was so close, the remote sensing instruments, so the cameras, were able to view the South Pole as well. And what we found was, for us to get the best results, what we did is we needed to put all the data sets together. To be able to understand a system, you need to look at all of the data. And so what we found as a group of teams is that there were cracks on the surface, which the imaging team called tiger stripes. And out of those cracks, heat was coming. But in addition to that, water vapor, dust, and organics. And what we've since found is that the amount of water vapor and dust and organics that are escaping changes over time. So it's variable. And it's this water vapor plume that's feeding the E-ring, a large diffuse ring that you can't actually see, but we've always known as being there. And we were never quite sure how it was being fed. So that was the discovery. We then, in the extended mission, we changed it a little so that we would have many more flybys of Enceladus. Because if you think about it, if you've got water, you've got heat, and you've got organic compounds, people people get excited. They think that's a place where there might be life. Michelle Doherty, who's also a lead scientist on the Jupiter Icy Moon Explorer, or JUICE mission, which was approved by ESA last year and is set for launch in 2022. Jane, apart from your involvement in the British Interplanetary Society, you're developing an instrument called Median to measure methane on Mars, and it's currently in Morocco. It is. The Austrian Space Forum are currently carrying out an analogue mission in the Moroccan desert. They're running about 19 experiments from 23 countries involved with them, I believe. And um, they're out there for an entire month testing various things, looking for data and seeing what science results they can bring back. My proposal was accepted last July and I've kept up with the mission milestones of delivering the project just about on time in December. And um, I got the first data back five hours ago. Oh, fabulous. And how's it going? Well, it looks like all the detectors are working and we got some numbers from them. So now we just need to tighten up the procedures and get everything going. I mean, it's quite a huge operation, isn't it? I mean, NASA are involved in this. I saw that some people are testing spacesuits. Out there as well. There's um, the spacesuit is one of the key features um, of of the mission, trying to do different tasks in it and seeing how long you can realistically work in it for a day. Now, I think methane on Mars is really interesting because this is one of the first findings from Mars Express, wasn't it? They they found traces of methane on Mars. Yes. And of course, you think methane has got to be organic. 
in origin, not necessarily. Cows, cows on Mars, <laughs> yes. yes. Well, that's the big question, whether it's organic or inorganic. So the idea of the project, which was very kindly donated to me by a friend, Nick Howes, um, the big-scale mission could be to put 20 of these tiny little landers out of a big mission, spread over an area into a hotspot. Then you can have methane readings from lots of different locations to pinpoint exactly where the methane's coming from, and then your main rover or vehicle could drive over to it to tell exactly whether the methane is organic or inorganic. I think we'd better just explain, actually, that MEDIAN stands for Methane Detection by In-Situ Analysis with Nanolanders. And that's because they're all small. Yes. How small? Well... At the moment, we have made them more shoebox size because we weren't really constrained from Morocco and we didn't want them to overheat in the desert. And obviously on Mars, it would be a lot colder. But the actual electronics board is just an Arduino microcontroller and um, two or three basic sensors plugged in. So theoretically, it could be very small, sort of not much bigger than a tennis ball. And is it, is it, is it like, is, do they have a camp out there or is it near a town? Is it far away it's, in the it's desert? It's six hours into the middle of nowhere oh, wow. um, and I, th- I think they don't get to shower for a month. And they've no. So is that why you're here days. rather than there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would have loved to have gone, but you needed to be there all four weeks really to be useful to the field team in Morocco. So instead, I volunteered for the remote science support team, which is helping for all the experiments. And I'm going out to Innsbruck next week for 10 days to help go on. So you get to hang out in bars in Innsbruck? <laughs> Well, they're in the desert. I, I think it's more working 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., solving problems like the satellite dish, not to. I mean, this, this, this place, though, this recreation of simulation of Mars, six hours from nowhere, right by a desert in Morocco. Come on, Tim, this sounds it, right it up sounds, your street, doesn't it? sounds more extreme than caves and Nemo put together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it is fascinating. I mean, that space analogues and this kind of research is, is wonderful stuff. I mean, that sounds like if, if humans ever do go to Mars, that that would be the sort of place that they might train even though you're not necessarily going to get the weightlessness absolutely yes yeah and there's analogues going on in the um arizona desert as well at the moment which has got a similar similar geology exactly trying out new um mars rovers for example uh, gps tracking um when you would have a gps system around mars to assist with navigation that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so fascinating research Coming back to one other point Tim made earlier, um, they hope to run the analogue mission on an eight-minute time delay as if it was Mars. <sighs> they haven't turned that on yet because we're currently in a testing week, but when we go live, they're hoping that we'll be doing all of that in real time to investigate the autonomy of the field team. So we do all this, we don't even need to go. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm too young to remember the Apollo moon missions, but the first missions to inspire me started with this one. We have ignition sequence has started. Six, five, four... Three. The launch of the Skylab space station in May 1973. Now, the first mission didn't go to plan. As a result of the launch, a sun shield came loose, which tore off one of the solar arrays and damaged the other. So when the first three astronauts docked 10 days after that launch was heard, they had to first repair the station and make it habitable, which is, I think, a dramatic mission on a par with uh, Apollo 13. Skylab itself, well, it was a little bit cobbled together from a spare Saturn V third stage. So it was essentially a great big hollow tube, which meant... Inside, it was one massive space, and there's some great videos on YouTube about it. We'll put those up on our Facebook page. And and for my money, those images from Skylab 
are every bit as compelling as the moon landings. Now, t- Tim, you're similar age to me. You're forty yeah, something, aren't 72, you? Seventy-two. So I was one when yeah. it was. When you're it was slightly, yours, slightly yeah. younger than me. Um, so, would you remember those Skylab missions and those sort of after Apollo missions of, of the mid seventies? I do. Yes, absolutely. And um, what I've actually recently been looking at some Skylab videos as well because I've been giving some presentations on human physiology and sort of microgravity countermeasures in space is very important long duration particularly so trying to counter muscle mass loss and bone density loss for example and there's wonderful footage in Skylab of the astronauts running around it they look like mice in, in a, a, a wheel a really wheel, because yes. it's, it's if you like the first exercise device and they simply run themselves around the uh, the circumference of Skylab I think the other thing with Skylab because it was so massive because it was essentially a hollowed out Saturn V rocket was that it was the closest thing to something like an Arthur C. Clarke space station, a proper big space in space. That's right. I don't think astronauts have enjoyed that luxury luxury sense on any vehicle. No, I've been in the, the mock-up of the uh, International Space Station, which we featured on the podcast. It's really cramped. You'll know this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the internal volume that overall is, is the same as a 747-400. It's a <laughs> big internal volume, but actually the diameter of every module is nothing like Skylab. It's more like being in an economy seat on a, exactly. a 747-400. It's so yeah. funny because whenever I used to report on the, the sections being put together on the International Space Station, they always made out that it was the size of five football pitches. But as you've just said, it's actually the living space is absolutely tiny. Yes, yeah, that's right. And of course, you you want, you want the space station packed with scientific equipment. That's the that's the aim of it. So yeah, we have a, have to compromise with restricted living space. So Tim, would you prefer to have a flight later on in the decade? Because there's talk of adding an inflatable module to the space station. I believe they're testing something next year. That's right. Uh, NASA have recently signed a contract, I believe, with Bigelow, um, looking at a 2015 uh, launch date for that inflatable module. No, I'd like to fly as soon as I possibly can, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have a drink to that. Especially with you? all the well-tested launchers, and the old reliable launchers. <laughs> but having something big like that in space, it's, it seems to me like a proper space station. I suppose it's just so much... You just carrying up air yeah i think you i think we will do i hope we will do because of course there's no drag in space so why not um if you can inflate something obviously you're restricted by launch uh, diameter and, and rockets to get you up into orbit but then if you can inflate something and make a very nice habitation module that could transfer be in, uh, maybe even be in orbit that could be a transfer vehicle to mars and back why not make it as, as comfortable and luxurious as possible? So you're already looking beyond your first mission to the International Space Station. You're already halfway to Mars, are you? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think it's probably outside of my, my working career time, but um, who knows, maybe an asteroid. And just to mention again, there's some uh, great film of Skylab, which I'll put on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Space Boffins. Thanks to our guests, ESA astronaut, Timothy Peake. Sorry, I couldn't resist that. <laughs> Tim Peake and Jay MacArthur and Ralph Timberlake from the British Interplanetary Society. Space Boffins is supported by the Atrium Space Insurance Consortium and by a grant from the UK Space Agency. We're produced by Boffin Media in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. We'll be back in a month and from the British Interplanetary Society Council Room with its wonderful retro space art. Thanks for listening. <laughs>